Uh, We're going to be in Romans chapter 5. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me. Uh, It's also printed in your bulletin. You know, we are uh, in the Advent season now, so we're starting our Advent um, series called Cure Duis Homo, which means why the God-man. So we're looking at this idea, why was it important that God came in the form of a man? Why was the incarnation, why is that, why was that needed, and why was it important? So this morning we're going to be looking at uh, the demonstration of God's love that we see poured out in the manger and on the cross, okay? So we're in the book of Romans, just to give you a little bit of context, the Apostle Paul wrote this wonderful letter, and many of us will know that this letter is full of theological truth. If you go to a systematic theology, the book of Romans is quoted over and over and over and over again because it's full of good theology, full of good things about our position before Jesus and what happens in conversion and what God does after conversion. So it's a beautiful book. Um, so in, in our immediate context and where we are today, in beginning of chapter 5, we see that we are justified by faith alone. This is a theme that uh, Paul picks up over and over again, and, and that justification that we receive, it leads to a couple things. It leads to peace with God, and it leads to access to the grace of his Son. And he goes on at the beginning of chapter 1, so once you have been reconciled to God, that we should rejoice in no matter what circumstance comes to our life. In highs and lows, we should rejoice. So today, as we're kind of picking up off of that, we see that how, how we have received salvation from Jesus, and this is the ultimate demonstration of love. Okay, so if you will, open with me. Uh, The text is printed in your bulletin. It's Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we are still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been now, now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful thing it is that you have called us our sons and daughters, as we were once enemies and far from you. Father, as we are in this season of Advent, of waiting, anticipation of the day to come, where we celebrate uh, not only your son being born many years ago, but the day that you will return, Father, we pray that our eyes would be focused there, that there are many distractions in this season, many good things that we do in this season that can often become our ultimate priority. So we pray, God, that you would be that, that you would be here changing our hearts, refocusing our minds to the love that you have demonstrated in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start with one of the most embarrassing stories I have of my adult life. Okay, are you ready? So when I was in college, uh, I was in drumline. You see me playing Cajon back here. So I've, I was in drumline for a long time. I was in drumline all throughout high school and five years into college. So nine years of my life was a big part of my life. 
In college, I, room, I was uh, rooming with a couple of my buddies who are still good friends of mine. One of my, my buddies was uh, in drumline with me. And we were all, it's really funny, because we lived together, and I was in drumline with him, and we all had the same degree. So we did everything together. It's like everything, all the time. So we would go to Village Inn um, to study. We were in business school, so study, I mean, like, you know, wasn't, wasn't tremendously difficult. Um, so three or four nights a week, we would go to Village Inn together. And uh, one night, uh, you know, we're, we're in college, so we would stay there till 11, 12, 1 in the morning, something like that was pretty normal. So we're driving home, and I had borrowed my mom's RAV4. It's a little, little car uh, for me, a big guy. A little car was an older one. And one of the coolest things about this car was uh, it had a, a really responsive horn. Okay, like really responsive. Like, I could, like, like you could do it really fast. It was a drummer. I would like... I could do it really fast, okay? So if you know Las Cruces, I left um, the village in on Loman right there, and I'm heading down Treviz. And if you know Treviz, runs parallel with Telshore with the highway in the middle, okay? So you can see this. So I'm driving down Treviz, and um, me and my buddy, I start doing drumline exercises on my horn, okay, at 1 in the morning. So I'm like, like doing it really fast and loud, right, on Treviz, okay? So you know Treviz, I'm driving down this road, honking next to this neighborhood at one in the morning. Yes, I know. This is really silly. I get to, if you know uh, Las Cruces, Treviz runs parallel with Telshore, and there is a bridge that goes underneath the the, uh, highway right there. Well, I get to that bridge, and a cop pulls right here, and he pulls around and flips on his lights right away. And he pulls me over, and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, I was running parallel with you, and I could hear you honking for blocks and blocks and blocks, right? So it was over, over the highway noise. He could hear me doing this, okay? So I'm, I'm, he pulls me over, and, you know, he gives me a ticket for excessive honking. I didn't even know that was a ticket to be had. $65 I paid for that ticket. I rolled down my window, and, you know, we all laughed. and said, I deserve that one, like for sure, right? And, and in life... Sometimes we do things that are stupid like that, that we know we deserve the punishment. We deserve what we got, right? But other times in our life, we don't know. We, we don't feel like this is not fair. Like we, we didn't deserve this punishment here. But either way, we know, if, if you're a believer, we know that when we sin, when we um, error from God's way, there are consequences. And what does the Bible say? Romans specifically is very clear about this doctrine. When we sin, we deserve death. And when I was taught um, kind of the big redemptive story in seminary, they didn't teach us creation fall. They taught us creation rebellion. Because instead of us just like, tr- we, just, we just stumbled a little bit. We were doing good and we fell. No, we rebelled against God. We ran away from him in the complete opposite direction. And the consequence for that sin is death. So today, we get to see a beautiful passage that should leave us saying, wow, God loves us even in that place? So the theme we're looking at today is that the death of his son reveals God's love for the world. The death of his son reveals God's love for the world. And I I put the outline in your bulletin so you can kind of follow along. So we're going to be looking at three things. Strength in verse 6, substitute in verses 7 through 8, and salvation in verses 9 through 10. So let's start in verse 
6 with strength. But we need to see the beginning of verse 6 that he starts with the word for, which anytime there's a for there or therefore, you need to say, why is it therefore, right? You've heard this before. So we need to look back. It's tying us back to verse 5. So I'm going to read verse 5 for us. It says this, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in verse 5, we see that we are the objects of God's love. God's love has been poured into our hearts. If you're a believer, that is true of you. In verses 6 through 8, the first two points we're looking at, there's a single argument that that Paul is putting forward, that he's showing that, that God's love is so abundant and absolute that it is oftentimes beyond our understanding. So in verse 5, when he says this, that, that his love has been poured out on you, the reader would, in, in, in their mind, say, why? Why has the love been poured out on us? And verse 6 gives us the answer. Verse 6 says this, for, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So the love of God has been poured out upon us, not on anything you or I have done, but solely because what has Christ has done for us. Now this, this um, I think it's important to start here because this verse, it expresses our state prior to God's love coming towards us, right? The text says, what is the text, how does the text describe us? It, it describes us as weak and ungodly, or you could render it godless. The apostle is starting the argument here for a reason. We need to understand our state before God intervened in our life. We will never appreciate or fully understand the love he has given to us by the baby coming in the manger. We have to understand our state first. So this is where he starts his argument. So he said that Christ died both for the weak and the ungodly or godless. Now this term weak is not always a negative term, but in this sense, what he's getting at is that weak means a total incapacity for doing good. There's no, we had no capacity at all. We are completely spiritually weak for doing anything good prior to God. We were impoverished in spiritual strength. But we're not only weak, he says we're godless, starting on a high note here right in this text. Yes, I know. We are godless. In other words, we are without God. We're completely helpless you're like me we often think that we are on this journey in life and we were doing okay and we're stumbling here and there and we're doing all right we're kind of walking towards god but actually the text is telling us we're walking in the opposite direction so the emphasis here is that god's love is poured out upon us in our desperation that his love was given to us not in any quality in ourselves but his love was antecedent it was before anything we ever did or even thinking about what qualities would come ahead. He doesn't love you based on your merit. He loves you based on his goodness. So remember, in verses 6 through 8, we're looking at a a, a single argument demonstrating God's love. So he starts with our position. Christ died for you in your worst day, in your worst position. Secondly, he is our salvation. So we can see he moves from our position into God's, he's showing God's love in comparison to human love. So let's look at this together. Substitute verses 7 through 8. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So these verses are expanding on the argument. He's like, this is the state you were in when God poured his love on you. Now let me explain this love to you that was poured out through Jesus. So here we see that this type of love that God gives to his people is unheard of in the human realm. In verse 7, we can often get hung up on differentiating, you know, the two type of people, right, that he mentions a righteous person and a good person. And there's lots of, like, debate on this. Some will say that a righteous person is someone who is simply just, like they they follow the law. But a good person is someone you're uh, close to, has a relationship with you. They follow the law and they're close to you. So um, all I have to say is there's not too much biblical warrant for separating them. I think the emphasis here in verse 7 is that the pinnacle of human love is giving one's life for another person. That is the pinnacle of human love. That's what all the commentators would agree on. A spouse, a child, a combat buddy, a close friend. Giving your life for someone else is the ultimate expression of love. So the text is telling us, you may die for someone who's close to you, but someone you hate, your enemy... Someone who despises you? No way! No way would you do that. I put myself in this position sitting in the text. I've told you this, the curse and the blessing of being a preacher, right? I get to sit in the text all week, and I get to, like, it it like wrecks my heart first, and then I get to bring it to you guys so it can wreck your heart, right? Like, that's what the text is supposed to do. So I sat in, and I thought about, like, the people that, like, have, like, rubbed me the wrong way in my life, and I thought, they're in a dire need, and would I die for them? And I thought to myself, no way. No way would I do that. And that's what he's saying here. That's that's not how God's love works. Not at all. Because in verse 8, he says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That the love is shown on the cross. It's so great and so beyond our understanding of, of, of normal love. And, you know, if you're in a good marriage or a good friendship or you have uh, children or parents that you love well, then you know that love is a really good thing. Like, like, we can have a lot of fulfillment, but even the best love here, he's saying that this is a, a different category of love, a completely different category because the most deplorable, godless, weak person, that's who Christ died for. And I think it's important to note that God's love, it's directly tied to Christ's death. That those two things are linked together. And John uh, Murray, one of the best uh, commentators on the Book of Romans, really in the last hundred years, says this. The relationship is that the death of Christ is the manifestation and expression of the love of God. So vividly we get to see how much God loves us through his Son. But did he come to die for the good person? No, he came to die for the weak and the godless. While we are yet sinners, it runs parallel from in verse 6 to while we are still weak. And they're really mutually definitive of each other. And our attention should be drawn to the fact that the love of God is given to women and men as sinners in their worst place not constrained by the qualities of the person they have today or they will have in the future, only by the goodness of God. So I read a story recently um, 
in this little publication called The Daily Bread we get here at the church, and I'm going to read it to you. I think it really uh, illustrates this point well, uh, something that we don't see often. It goes like this. During the Revolutionary War, there was a faithful preacher of the gospel by the name of Peter Miller. He lived near a fellow who hated him intensely for his Christian life and testimony. In fact, this man violently opposed him and ridiculed his followers. One day, this unbeliever was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. Hearing about this, Peter Miller, the pastor, set on foot to intercede for the man's life before George Washington. The general listened to the minister's earnest plea, but told him he didn't feel he should pardon his friend. My friend? He's not my friend, answered Miller. In fact, he's my worst living enemy. What? George Washington said. You have walked 60 miles to save the life of a man who is your enemy? That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a different light. I will grant your request. With the pardon in hand, Miller, the pastor, hastened to the place where his neighbor was to be executed and arrived just as the prisoner was walking to the scaffold. When the traitor saw Miller, he exclaimed, Oh, Peter Miller has come to have his revenge by watching me hang. But he was astonished as he watched the minister step out of the crowd and produced a pardon which spared his life. That's what I would expect for spitting in God's face, that he would be there to watch me get judged. But that's not what he does. He puts out the pardon. He said, my son will take the wrath. My son will take the guilt. So you and me, that was our position, that we were weak, we were godless. And often there's like things to do from a text that we should go and apply these to our life. And today, the application is believe. Believe that this is true. And really, we can find ourselves in one of two categories, right? We can disbelieve that God's love is really always there for us, really in two categories. First, maybe you've been a believer for a long time, and and you slip into disbelief. You've walked with him, you know him, you love him, you're active here. You still sin like all of us? And when you sin, what do you do? If you're like me, I read my Bible more. I come to church more. I pray more. All good things. But I'm doing them to earn God's favor. The call here is to repent and rest because God's work is done through Jesus. I want to pay God back when I sin, but he says the payment is complete. You don't have to work. The work has been done. So confess and rest. That's it for you, believer. Now, if you don't believe in God or you're figuring out uh, where you stand with what you believe, I want you to see this, God's love on display through his son. And this love that God has for you and for me is not dependent upon anything you have done. I've said this several times because I want you to hear it, right? Only on the goodness of God. That's all it's dependent upon. So don't think you have to clean up your life to come to him. You come to him and he cleans you up. That's, that's the gospel. That you come to him and say, I have nothing. I'm weak and godless. And he makes you godly and strong. That's the beautiful thing through his son. 
So Jesus has set you free from sin and death, and all you have to do is repent and turn to him. That is the call to us all, that we need to turn and rest in what Jesus has done for us. Okay, lastly, let's look at salvation in verses 9 through 10. So this argument in verses 9 through 10 is a different one from the first three verses that we looked at. Um, it's, a, it's an argument essentially that goes like this. To the effect that one thing is true, how much more is something else true? So if to the effect that something is true, how much more is this other thing true? So these two verses run parallel in construction, though they're reiterating the same thing. They both are saying, if you are saved as an enemy of God, how much more shall you be saved now that you are reconciled? If you were saved as an enemy before, how much more shall you be saved now? And they both, verses 9 and 10, both uh, bring forth uh, distinct help for us. So let's look at them in turn. Verse 9 says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we see that justification here comes only through bloodshed of Jesus. Now the thrust of this, if you are saved right now today by the bloodshed of Jesus, how much more will you be spared in the future the wrath of God? So he's speaking about what is true in the future. If you are worrying about future judgment or any judgment from God, you don't need to worry about that. If, if in your weak and godless state you are saved, how much more will you be saved in the future? So justification here is the opposite of condemnation. That there is no wrath at all deserved for the justified at the judgment seat. So if you are justified, you have no worry. So our hope, we see, our hope in glory as Christians is both negative and positive. Okay? We see that the hope uh, of glory for believers is positive and that we have salvation in Christ. We are one with Him. We get to live with God forever. At the same time, the hope of glory for believers is also negative, that we are spared from the wrath of God. Our penalty was paid by someone else. The wrath was put out on someone else on our behalf. So verse 10 says something very similar, but also distinct in its own way. It says this, For as while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So next week in the series, we're talking about propitiation, which is salvation through Christ and the work he has done. So I'm not going to touch on it too much. I, you could preach a whole sermon on verses 9 through 10, uh, so I'm not going to do that now. Uh, I'll give that to Chuck next week. So we'll talk about propitiation next week. But I want to just hone in on one aspect. He says this, while we were enemies, that phrase, I want us to realize that um, that should be taken passively, meaning the text is not speaking about my attitude towards God. The text is actually speaking about God's attitude towards me. Because I was a sinner, I was alienated from God. God alienated me from himself. So it is speaking of the hostility of God where God is the agent. So it's speaking of this alienation. And when it said that we were reconciled to God, that is a removal of the alienation towards us. So in summary, when you were alienated to God, as far as you could be, that's when he poured his love out on you. 
So now that you are not alienated, you are in his family, how much more does he love you? If he loved you when he was ready to pour his wrath out on you, now, as a believer, justified in Jesus, his son, think about that. Rest in it. Know that he loves you beyond your understanding. So we're not going to read... Verse 11, it's not printed for you. It's not actually in the text that we're reading today, but I'm going to conclude. I think it kind of concludes the whole section really well, so I'm going to read this in conclusion. It says this, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we get to see a demonstration of God's love by him sending his son in the flesh to ultimately die, and we can rejoice that it was not us on the cross because he was there instead. He has redeemed us. No matter what you face, church, this week, you can remember that the death of the Son reveals God's love for the world, for you and me. The call today is to rest in that love. Let's pray together. Father, we often um, are distracted by the many things around us in this season. We forget the great love that we get to see in the, in the manger. And Father, we pray that this would be ever on our minds, on our lips, on our heart, that we would know all you have done for us and that we would live in that and rest in that, God. I'm not trying to work our way back to your good graces, but know that we are there because of the bloodshed of your Son, the baby you sent to be born in a manger. Father, we thank you for your word that we get to see more about you and more about ourselves. Father, thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.